Welcome to the Multidimensional Evolution Podcast. I am Kim McCall. The premise underpinning discussions on this podcast is that life extends beyond the physical dimension, that death is not the end of life, that we're all connected energetically with each other, both in the physical dimension and across dimensions, and that there is a purpose to our life that involves growth, healing and assistance to each other. I aim to have conversations to expand your consciousness, help you reconnect with your essential self, and live life as an integrated, multidimensional human being. But given the subject matter, a request. Don't believe in anything, including what is shared here. Experiment, have your own experiences, and always use discernment. The musical introduction to this episode is by Finnish fusion artist Axel Teslev, and this song is called Reincarnation. My guest today is Nelson Abreu, who spoke with me from the Numa Mind Spa in Los Angeles that he runs together with his partner Minori Sumana Singe, who you can hear in episode 32. I spoke with Nelson in episode 9 about the kind of innovative technologies that he and Minori have created to assist us in deepening our connection to consciousness. In this episode, Nelson returns after completing a book called The Tao of the Tao, that is Tao, T-A-O, of the Tao, D-O-W, in which he has compiled a number of articles and talks about the role of consciousness in the world of business. As such, we talk about a range of topics, such as workplace energy, the question of perpetual growth of consciousness versus perpetual economic growth, the way changes in consciousness shift the way we do politics and economics, how altered states of consciousness drive innovation, and much more. Inadvertently, Nelson and I went from saying hello straight into the topic as Nelson explained how his company had to make adjustments to meet coronavirus requirements. Not because they weren't already meeting them, but because they needed to manage public perceptions of how they were meeting them. So I quickly hit the record button and you're jumping into the beginning of our, co- of our conversation mid-flow. Because I'm assuming what you were doing up to now was fine, right? You were doing what you were doing. It was making right. sense internally. Like you were making sure that you could do the job, even though it right. involved some people staying home. Yeah, there's this idea that you... You can't trust, you know, you can't trust people. You know, if they're at home, they're not going to produce. Uh, but actually, the, the truth is the reverse. People are working longer hours, producing more at home. Yeah. Uh, because they don't have a clear line of distinction between homework and, at home and work. You know, and uh, th- there's been a cultural shift. Uh, organizations that were very traditional and were not open to uh, work from home are having no choice but to allow for that. Um, there are organizations where you had to report and show your face you know, at you know, start time to make sure you're there. And it's all very much about uh, very like fiscal way of doing things. Yeah. Uh, whereas... Now, in this crisis, we're forced to just operate on performance. Okay, did we accomplish our objectives? 
then you must have done your, your job right. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and uh, when you empower people with trust, they, they want to typically live up to that trust. And then you just deal with the one or two exceptions to that rule rather than treating everyone as if they're not trustworthy. You know? yeah. And guess what? The ceiling doesn't fall. In fact, you have more productivity, more uh, well-being in the workplace, and more engagement, more motivation. And you know, the best companies in the world already know that, but there are a lot of companies that until recently were still very conservative. Yeah. Especially municipal government entities, that sort of thing. Yeah. And this pandemic has forced them to reevaluate how they conduct their business. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of pushing us into trying these new ways of working, um, into new paradigms in a way. And, you know, as you're talking, it makes me think a bit of, um, it's almost a bit like a sort of parenting a model, you know, whether you're a parent that is highly controlling and you don't trust your child to do the right thing, even though, you know, they might be a mature teenager at this stage, you're always trying to keep things, keep tight lid on things. And often um, parents like that will experience a lot of rebellion in, in their children. And the other paradigm, it's kind, of a, it's kind of a power over model, right? A power over your staff, a power over your children, um, rather than a power with model where you see your staff as part of, or, you know, your, your team, your work team as part of your, your community that has a joint objective, has joint, joint motivation to achieve your outcomes and so on. It's also a shift from managing time, right? As if we're in a factory making widgets where time is of the essence because, you know, one minute might equal, might equal one widget, you know, if the machine's running and you have the person, you know, stamping away at something. Yeah. But most work nowadays is not that rote and mechanical. It's more cognitive. It's more creative. It has to do with rapport and understanding and strategy, things that are more human and less machine-like. Yeah. And if you treat people like machines and you're so concerned with managing time, then uh, you don't have the best results. So you're seeing a shift from managing time to managing energy, right? So if the energy is at a high level at the workplace, which could be their home, could be their office, could be out in the field, then you see more results. Yeah, and so can you say a bit more about managing energy? Because that could mean energy can mean different things to different people. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, in a generic metaphorical sense, it means uh, creating an atmosphere of inclusion, of diversity, you know, where people from diverse backgrounds feel included, feel belonging, engagement, respect. And this allows them to feel psychologically safe and be bold and propose new ideas and uh, find and expose opportunities without feeling like they will be marginalized, they will be demoralized, minimized, 
you know, and um, if every time you raise your hand, you feel like somebody just trying to chop your head off, you're, you're going to keep to yourself mm. and you're not going to care so much. If you feel like the people who are in positions of leadership and authority use that to press you down instead of actually making you feel like they care about you in a genuine way, that's not going to motivate you. If you don't understand the purpose of your work and you're just encouraged to clock in, clock out, you don't understand the meaning, the impact of your work, you don't get the why, then you're probably not that motivated either. Um, if you are given no autonomy, even as you grow in competence, you're probably not going to be as motivated because you're just uh, crushed and micromanaged and you don't live up to your potential. You yeah. don't get to show or display your potential. If there is no opportunity for growth and learning new things, again, yes. low motivation, low energy. And yeah. you can tell it's actually quite little. You walk into an office, you walk around, you see how people are and how they interact. And you can just get an immediate sense for the energy in that place. And, and that's more of a literal uh, understanding of energy, energy, right, as in the vital force that's within each one of us and that characterizes spaces. But you could think of it as a sort of information field as well, right? That you could just pick up that information, the meaning in the space. Uh, it doesn't take very long to see if that's a place that's very much uh, has a strangle hold on creativity and on authenticity, or if it's a place that's more what people can be themselves, they can bring their whole selves to work and maybe it's less organized, maybe it's a little more chaotic, uh, but it's more creative and productive. More organic maybe, hey? More organic, yeah. Mm. Now, you, you, there's something I really found really interesting when you were talking there because it made me think about the concept of growth, right? And so growth is such a fundamental concept in economics and this, this myth that we have the perpetual growth in terms of the, the production and the output of our economy, which right. um, I would expect that we both agree is, does, does not make sense uh, in a world with finite resources that we have. And, and it, as, a, as a priority, it's just such a narrow piece, right? But then right. on the other right. hand, you just talked about growth a couple of times as in the, the growth of the individual and that evolutionary drive that we all have. And that is, in fact, something that we can look at as something that is always growing, right? We, that we can have perpetual growth within ourselves as, as consciousness. So I'd be really interested to hear that, some, you know, your thoughts on those. Absolutely. I mean, we, we could tell that there's something wrong when the pandemic is going and it's affecting people's livelihoods, lives. So we're losing lives. We're losing uh, jobs and people are struggling and it doesn't you look around it doesn't feel like times are great for most people but then you look at the stock market it's fantastic right <laughs> so what are we measuring actually right um, so the if there's a nuclear accident that wipes out a town and then you have to 
clean up the town and rebuild the town, guess what? GDP will go up because it's just measuring the volume of economic activity, not how well people uh, are. So it's become abundantly clear that the, looking at GDP or, as, or the price of stocks alone is not reflective of how, uh, how well people are doing. So when people say the economy is doing well, it's like, for whom, <laughs> right? So it's uh, definitely not reflective of everyone's uh, well-being, quality of life. And so people are looking for uh, human development indexes, you know, indices. They're looking at uh, gross domestic happiness, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, well-being indicators as more reliable ways of assessing the economy, uh, how well the economy is doing for for uh, most people, you know, for, for the population at large. And they're looking at things like their health, their feelings of well-being and happiness. Uh, they're looking at their ability to uh, get an education and to um, continue to develop their their abilities and to express their potential, to feel safe and included in society. And uh, those are, yeah, those are things that are not captured in the economic indices, which is part of the reason, you know, I wrote the, the book, uh, The Tao of the Tao, because the it's clear that there's a disconnect between the things that we want to measure and the things that are measured. And there's also a paradox that the things that matter the most can be strictly measured, right? Yeah. Love, yeah. you know, happiness. But they can be, uh, if you have enough indices, you can, even if it's somewhat quantitative, somewhat qualitative, you can get a better snapshot. You can definitely get a snapshot of, of, of yourself, you know, and you ask yourself certain key questions as to how satisfied are you in your life right now? How, how much do you feel connected with your purpose? Like those, they give you an indication of um, how safe do you feel in, in society? Um, right. You, you and, know, you know, I just think I kept, kept thinking of Star, Star Trek, you know, <laughs> and this whole idea of if our economic needs were met, right? Our basic needs were met. Then what? What would we do with our lives? You know, then we would be learning, exploring, uh, and trying to thrive, you know, and, and, uh, and, and develop ourselves. And, and, those and how are, does that, how does that come in, in Star Trek? Is that, uh... so yeah. So the people aboard the, the spaceship, right? They, they don't work for money. Right. They don't have this concept of money they, because their basic needs are provided for. They have shelter, they have food. Yeah. So, when, in fact, when they join, they, they have a hard time adapting some of them. So, what am I supposed to do now? <laughs> well, uh, know yourself. Learn about the nature of reality. Explore. Uh, develop yourself. Improve yourself. You know, and, and that's, that's pretty, pretty brilliant. Now, uh, I'm an entrepreneur as well, right? So I do have an appreciation for certain aspects of the economic system, right? Which, the idea being that 
it, it's a sort of currency, it's a sort of uh, energy. So it's a, it's a form of energy that we can exchange, we can accumulate. If you think of it as, as, as energy or as sort of like lifeblood, then the idea is just to allow it to flow. It's something that if it's not meant necessarily just to accumulate for its own sake, but if you look at it as something that allows for ideas, for, uh, for, for things to manifest, uh, for people to come together, for people to cooperate, collaborate, then, you know, money is not really uh, the root of all evil, in my opinion, right? Uh, because money is really just a store of value, right? Money is just a store of value. It doesn't exist in nature as a natural force or, yeah. or entity. So what's, what could be wrong is what we deposit value upon, right? So that's, I think, where things get interesting is if we truly value trees, for example, then if you have a small forest, you could be a billionaire in theory because you're producing shade, oxygen. You know, if you valued oxygen more, <laughs> then growing trees would be very profitable uh, rather than chopping them down for wood. Yeah. So, you know, so it's what we value that's it's really in question, not the thing that we use to store the value. So mm-hmm. that, that raises the, the topic, which is behind all these things that we see as numerical, right? Because like, we have a field of economics that makes it sound like money is, this, is as real as gravity. You know, uh, it really, when you start looking at the deeper layers of the economy, what you see is that uh, you have essential flows of information, right? Like, uh, oh, this company is about to make a discovery, a breakthrough, or, you know, it's about to go public. Okay, so having information is key to making these economic decisions, mm. right? Uh, and also you have power struggles, power plays, you know, between com- competitors and, and things like that and government regulations and everybody's just trying to make moves, you know, and, and signaling each other and so on, you know, signaling to the consumer, to signaling to the competition, so on, posturing. So it's all, it's like a theater to some extent, right? right. And then if you peel below that, then you see that um, what makes something more valuable or more important, uh, it's really, uh, now you're getting into the world of uh, values, of attitudes, behaviors, right? If you dig deeper than that, now you reach the world of energy and consciousness and, and being. And that insight I actually got from watching national television in Portugal, you know, a clip from the finance minister, a former finance minister, uh, who was near his... Uh, at the end of his life. So he was just postulating postul- about life. And yeah. in that context, what he said is if you wanted a better GDP, you wanted a better uh, kind of stock index in 25 years, you had to work with the culture, children now, between still certain values and so on. Uh, but I was really fascinated to see this 
prestigious economists talking about energy and consciousness as the root level of economics. Mm. And that's where I think things click for me, that things that for me seem in, were calling my attention. I was interested in uh, worker-owned cooperatives. I was interested in, um, you know, the role the, that, uh, that uh, economic injustice was playing in today's world. And I was also interested in things like lucid dreams. So these seemed like very distinct things, but at that moment, I, I, I could see clearly that they were connected. Yeah, yeah. So, and I would like to actually, so I guess that was kind of sowed the seed for then stepping into this space and writing the book, right? Um, the day after the day. Right, it, it started as just uh, reflections, little essays that I started writing to make it clear to myself <laughs> where, uh, how these things started to connect. And what I found, it was interesting. I, I, I would go and write an article or give a talk to people who are interested in things like near-death experiences and so on. And I, I, would, this, I would use it as a provocation uh, to some extent that I was going to come to this group and talk about economics. Right. And, you know, it's, what? <laughs> the, what does these two things have to do with one another? They're supposed to be antithetical. You know, money, spirituality, they almost seem like they don't belong together, right? And uh, I, 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 by the end of that talk, they, they would start to see the connection. That, well, well yes, think, the, way, think, the way we think yeah. and the way we see the world changes how we do politics, how we do the economy, how we do the workplace, how we do family, etc. I mean, my, my sense is that people who are, uh, you know, versed in the world of money and economics, um, a lot of those people are quite aware of that com connection, right? They're quite aware that their, well, intentionality and consciousness and way of thinking creates their financial reality and creates the financial reality of, um, of societies. And I think a lot, of, a lot of those of us who have this, hangover which i certainly had as well a hangover about somehow money is somehow antithetical to consciousness and spirituality i i now see that quite clearly as a hangover from you know religious indoctrination even beyond this lifetime right of carrying this this idea of the the um that somehow there's something about um being poor you know the, the monk with the begging bowl is somehow purer than uh, or more spiritually enlightened than the, the wealthy person I, I, in the castle, right? Right. I had a similar upbringing. You know, I, I was very good at mathematics and, and I was drawn to the world of, you know, numbers and so on. But I actively avoided finance and anything to do with economics because it just, I found it repulsive. And I guess to some extent I still do because you see what goes on in Wall Street and so on and, how devoid of connection with the everyday world it seems that yes. And so that part, I think it was a natural instinct, but on the other hand, now, you know, I've, I've been starting companies and, and, and being active in, in, in that world, the entrepreneurial world. Right. And so obviously I have, I've shifted the way I think about uh, money, right? So money, not so much as like an end in and of itself, but as a sort of energy that we can use to create change in the world, right? It's uh, yeah. 
it, it, it's, a, it's a store of value and it's a, it's a lifeblood of getting things done in this physical world. But um, yes, it's not like, uh, there's a comedian that says something like accumulating wealth. It's like uh, pasting sandwiches on your face when you're hungry rather than just eat what you need and then you're good, you know, right. something like that. So yeah, the end goal is not so much accumulation or telegraphing your importance to the world through, you know, symbols like expensive cars and things like that. But it's rather like a, a means to a productive end. Yeah. Yeah. And again, kind of the state of consciousness and our intentionality, as you said, I think money is just a, an instrument, right? It's just a tool. And then right. we will use it in accordance with who we are at, at the being and consciousness level. Now, I get that uh, if we come across a lot of money all of a sudden, that means a lot of power to some extent. And uh, that's something that we see that we do have sometimes difficulty handling power, right? And that can make us somehow power drunk to some extent and uh, lead us down some or to simply reveal certain immaturities that we have within us. Uh, but it's not so much that the money corrupted you. In fact, it's just, it's showing how corruptible you were to begin with. Right. Um, yeah. But of course it's, it's challenging and it's very difficult to be mature uh, around this subject of, of power, but it doesn't mean it's not possible. It, it, it's just a challenge. But if you come across it more gradually, perhaps it's more, more manageable also. Uh, but if you're, if you're actually just driven by a certain vision to begin with, then, you know, money was never the reason why you went in that direction to begin with, right? It's, it's whatever you're chasing, that dream um, of creating something new, materializing something into the world, right? A, a, new, a new technology, uh, a new way of doing things. Um, that that's a much more powerful than the idea of having a certain number in your bank account you know, or having so much in stocks. You know. it's, it's what's driving you is actually wanting to, to create something uh, for the world. You know, and when you think about one of the wealthiest companies in the world right now, Apple, right? Every, the, everyone thinks of Steve Jobs, right? And I won't say that he was a perfect man. I think it's easy to find out that he had a lot, a lot of flaws and might have not, not always been fun to be around. But, um, but it's interesting to see that he credits certain experiences like uh, an LSD trip, you know, with uh, opening his eyes to uh, the world of consciousness, right? And also an appreciation for design as a sort of way of honoring the, the consumer. In other words, um, you could be just very functional about things, but if you, if you make things beautiful and easy to use, the person using it feels almost dignified. It's like honoring something that makes us more than just machines, right? So our appreciation mm. for art and, and beauty uh, and good design. I mean, it, it's a very simple way of, actually telegraphing like I see you as a human being it's it's kind of interesting you know as because machines don't have this art aesthetic appreciation you know 
they, but, but we yeah. do. And, and, and the fact that, okay, it's still an expensive product, but it's more uh, accessible to a lot of people, right? Then, then say, you don't have to be a king or a queen to, to, to have those sorts of things anymore. And um, so that was there, you know. Uh, and also it's quite interesting that the computer age happened to come in a place like around Stanford University and, you know, Silicon Valley, where there was a lot of experimentation going on with mind altering and all yeah. of that stuff. Yeah. And uh, I don't think that's a coincidence. Now, uh, I, I personally have never, you know, uh, done any sort of like uh, mind altering substance, but because I came across things like how to have out of body experiences, how to feel and manipulate energy at a very, a relatively young age, like around sixteen. Yeah. So I just felt like Which I don't just, need just to for, go so through just, that. Area. Just for just for listeners, going, you can go back to episode nine of this podcast, and you know you share your your kind of story there, really, about how you tapped into that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so uh, I, I, I do find that, yes, like, uh, for example, I was recently able to publish uh, an article that a long time ago I, I wouldn't have thought possible, which is an, an article in an energy industry uh, publication about how uh, these altered states can be a powerful way of opening us up for innovation. Yeah. It turns out now in a pandemic, more than ever, that's what people are looking for, ways to pivot, ways to recover, ways to reimagine, to adapt. And what people are looking for is insight, you know, also energy to deal with the new cycle alone, right? Um, and, and, and with the, the immune system and everything. So there's actually a thirst for new ideas, new energy, and um, guess where we can find all of that? Within, within. So the biggest engine of the economy is consciousness, whether people realize it or not. Yeah. Well, that, that kind of um, uh, takes me to a topic that I've recently been thinking about, and I don't think you, you write about it in your book, but it's, um, it seems to be kind of the new uh it's probably not new but the way it's developed it's become the the largest kind of aspect of our economy and that's the attention economy right it's the 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 the, the power that people like facebook and google and youtube hold over our attention which you know equals our consciousness and our energy right from the conscientious paradigm point of view that um by being able to put things in front of us uh, that they can draw our, our, our attention and energy into it. And, um, and that's the reason why these companies have become as massive as they have, right? Because they have this sway over these unprecedented numbers of people. Um, I think it's 2 billion or so for, for Facebook. And if you add Instagram and so on, it's another billion or so. Um, so, that is that can go many different ways right it's a bit like it's a bit like the money thing like it can be used for one end or for another end what's what right you, what's uh, on that 
you know, Karl Marx, uh, he may, may have not been on the right track as far as a solution to, to, to the problem he found, but he's widely recognized as, as a genius for pointing out a fatal flaw with capitalism, at least as it's practiced, right? And it's the fact that the people who control the means of production have an unfair advantage, right, over everyone else. And the people who actually labor and help create things, they, you know, they might get paid for the hour of work they make, but that's about it, right? They don't develop actual wealth. Yeah. Uh, but he predicted back then that actually it's not so much the machines, but on a fundamental level, it's those who control the information, right? Because why can't the workers just go and make a machine, right? Oh, well. Maybe they don't hold a patent, et cetera, et cetera, right? So uh, maybe they don't have access to the education to become an engineer, to go and, and make a machine and so on. So it's actually the power of information. Uh, so a long time ago, he already sort of foresaw our predicament, which is, yeah, the people who own, own the data that you're putting out there have an unfair advantage, and they are now using it to... Uh, allow others to manipulate election outcomes, um, you know, the way people are informed or misinformed about scientific matters that could affect the future of mankind, whether it's how, how uh, pandemics work or how global warming might work. And it's, yeah, it's wrecking havoc over just simply greed, right? Just as, as always. Um, However, uh, I, I touched on it in the sense that I, I'm, I'm following the rise and participating also in the rise of, of a new field, right, which, uh, or industry, which some people are calling transformative technologies, right? So it's uh, essentially consciousness technologies, if you will, um, or what I call internal reality technologies, so you have virtual reality, right? Where you might wear goggles and you, your mind might be transported to a virtual space, you know, which is, by the way, it's brilliant how I was watching a little clip about uh, Federico Fagin, the inventor of the modern microprocessor. Uh, and he, he, he made this point that the virtual, we had to invent computers to invent virtual reality to realize that our reality might be virtual to some extent. <laughs> I just thought that that was, that was brilliant. But that's what we're getting at. Is we're getting more and more uh, access to virtual realities. We, we have the Twitterverse. We have the Facebook world. You know, But soon enough, we'll have uh, augmented reality worlds, <laughs> Internet of Things world, virtual reality worlds. You know? And... And those worlds, uh, the nature of them depends on who, who, who owns and controls them. And right now it's big corporations, which means people who can buy that influence through advertising and so on and messing with algorithms will have an undue influence over, over the world. Uh, in a similar vein, there's uh, this transformative technology, which actually is... Uh, measuring your bodily signals, your brain waves, your heart rate, what kind of chemicals are made up in, you know, the chemical composition of your, of your exhalation, for example, 
Uh, all of that it gives signals about how you're feeling and what you're thinking about. You know, how nervous are you? How stressed out? How distracted are you? Which, by the way, can be valuable information if it's fed back to you, right? And you can use that information to become more self-aware, make better decisions, and decide, you know what? Exactly. So if you're a worker uh, doing a dangerous job and you're distracted, be good to know, right? Yeah. could save your life. could save you from making a big mistake. Uh, but if that information goes to the employer, uh, it could be different. Now you could get reprimanded. They might deduct from your pay. I might say, I might tell you if you're a warehouse worker in an Amazon facility, they might say, uh, well, you haven't been that productive in the last few minutes, so we're going to add 15 minutes to your shift or, or we'll deduct those 15 minutes from your pay. I, mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see things like that in the horizon. Yeah. And so that I, I wrote about in this book how this technology has the power to improve your self-awareness, as you said, your self-regulation. And it could really be fantastic tools to develop our consciousness, right? And give us insight into our body, into our brain activity. Fantastic. I want that. Um, uh, but <laughs> that data has to be under your control. It cannot go and uh, be used by commercial and government third parties that really cannot, should not be trusted that information. Right, yeah. but looking at the way things are going with other technologies, uh, th th there is um, some concern there. Right, so I, I wrote in the book as a sort of cautionary <laughs> tale, you know, to, to get people to start thinking about it before it becomes a reality. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because I'm developing some of these technologies. Uh, so, for example, I'm working on a. I worked on a prototype in my uh, graduate program at the uh, University of Southern California, uh, where uh, it's a hard hat that measures your brain waves and warns you, you know, if you are distracted. So that's an example to, to save you from making a, a big mistake that could hurt you or someone else or cause like a, an outage or right. something like that, blackout. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but specifically, I postulated that, that information would not be given to third parties, right? But yeah. someone else could come along into it. So this is really uh, difficult. On the other hand, we're working on other technologies like uh, the cymatics, right? That uh, you spoke to Minori about recently, yeah. where we're using technology to help people deeply relax and then have experiences like lucid dreams, out-of-body experiences, and gain insights and uh, reach cognitive shifts. I actually shift the way you think about the world, about yourself. So this technology is all very beneficial, but we have to monitor it just like any other technology to make sure it's not taken down any sort of uh, well, unproductive yeah, paths. And this is really the big struggle, I think, with a lot of this, right? Because, um, you know, you mentioned, for example, in your book, uh, how you talk about how mindfulness can help us, you know, be more centered, be more productive. Um, and, uh, and I think that's made its place into a lot of workplaces now, you know, there's workplace yoga and workplace meditation, but the, the 
And on one level, that's quite okay, right? Like it's, it's, it's good to come to space and be able to be centered and be more focused. But on the other hand, the question is, you know, what for? What is the overall picture? So, for example, well, if you're... I mean, right now, a, yeah, right now the objective is clear. It's to get better financial results for the boss, right? Yeah. And, uh, or, because that's the big difference. Is it, is it really about well-being? Because it's about well-being you would also look at what's making people stressed out to begin with. Yes, exactly. What's the, what's the causality, both in the workplace, also in people's private history, you know, the, the traumatic nature of so much of our society. Um, but, but it's positive because at least now insurance companies <laughs> are doing studies and revealing that five minutes of mindfulness uh, daily can translate to roughly 2,000 US dollars and savings uh, in terms of lost productivity, you know, days off, illness, and so on. So it's great that there's an economic business case basically for uh, treating people better. Yeah. Now, what's the intention behind it? Is it strictly more pro productivity or is it both? You know, just the realization that if you have a better work environment, better energy, right, you get better results for for people's well-being and the outcome. I, I think it can be both. Is it, but sometimes it does feel like, uh, you know, it's just being co-opted to some extent, you know, like when you, when you, when you see things like Marine, the Marines, you know, the U S Marines are doing it. It's yeah. great. You know, and I, I respect people who are, you know, putting their lives on the line for, for others and so on. But we all know there's a bit of a dark side to that, which is that 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 honor is misused and redirected to do things sometimes that are very much regrettable, right? So then here you are, you could potentially have someone who's, you know, meditating, doing all these beautiful things. One day, next day, they're at war, you know, and, and, and maybe a dubious one. And so, <laughs> yeah, so it's like fire, you know, fire is not positive or negative. It's this powerful thing in nature, and it we wouldn't want to extinguish the fire. Mm. Right? Fire has saved us, you know, to, to some extent. In, in the early days of humanity, we wouldn't we wouldn't want humans not to discover fire, right? Just because it can't be misused. Yeah, we just have to work on ourselves. So, I mean, another you know, taking it perhaps another sort of level, I I was. Uh, I was. I learned this morning that um, the uh, Champagne region of um, France, right, is forecast to lose one point something billion dollars over the next year because of lock. People have been drinking less champagne because there is um, uh, no, you know, no parties, no, you know, less weddings, less funerals, um, and they're already forecasting that they will. Um, destroy all of or, or not turn into champagne anyway all of the next year's crop because they don't want to over supply the market and um, there's a, a different ways of looking at it right but but uh, what it made me think was that um, you know alcohol um, industry generally is, is much like the weapons industry uh, their industries is the tobacco industry They're all industries that, on the one hand, um, from a from a consciousness point of view, uh, their demise is desirable. 
I would say, right? I would just sort of put that out there. <laughs> in some ways, we would like their demise. But when you actually think about it, the economic ramifications are dramatic, right? The losses of employment. Um, there are, you know, millions of people that are tied up in these kinds of enterprises. And so, to say that about, you know, opium farms in Afghanistan or something like yeah, that, right? Yeah. So then, yeah, so then the key or like coal, coal miners in uh, West Virginia, in the U.S., Right yeah. now, the key is not to subsidize coal to keep those jobs. It's that was a program that was defunded by the current administration that was taking coal miners, teaching them how to code and getting them jobs in the new economy, you know, in the inf- information age. It's fascinating. It was working really well. But instead of getting more funds, it just got defunded because, yeah. you know, post- political posturing or whatever. But uh, so, yeah, we, we, we don't want to punish people uh, for us adopting positive change. We, we would like to support transitional programs. It's all doable, but we have to have that collective will and courage to do it. Yeah. Well, and I think that's where also, again, these consciousness technologies uh, I feel that's where it comes in, right? So rather than finding ways of being more productive in the old system, it's actually um, supporting us to transition to a new system at many different levels. Right. So the people that, that we've been working with that have been using these technologies are, uh, for example, people who are uh, the, the medical first responders, uh, but also uh, activists, people who are out there trying to change social consciousness. So these are people that are doing great work, either caring for others or inspiring change, but because they're in the, in the limelight to some extent, uh, they're in the front lines, it's very much taxing to them, right? So yeah. if this technology can help boost their energy, they can keep doing what they're doing. That's one aspect. But the other is... Uh, social ventures, but also just uh, entrepreneurs, creative professionals who are out there just trying to be uh, creative and solve problems. And the, the insight to solve the problem comes from within. I mean, it does come with a lot of ed- education, a lot of research, a lot of work, but that final insight usually comes in a special moment. Uh, it could be... Uh, a, a moment of silence, of quiet, of frankly, of boredom, right? It's mm-hmm. usually where the best ideas come from. Uh, but you have to kind of allow yourself to have that quiet, still time, right? Uh, or entering those, which sometimes lets you enter into those uh, altered states, like being between awake and asleep, body sleep, mind awake, and so on. And that's what we're creating. We're creating you know, technology, environments that allow people to do that and, and get those, those, uh, those creative insights. I noticed that working with groups to solve uh, problems, uh, when we're together, you know, it's great. It's like a little mind jab, right? Uh, it posted notes end up on the wall and there's lots of ideas. It's fantastic. But then you also need... Uh, time alone to chew on it, to reflect, to go within, and and then you go back into the group. So there's this like divergent, convergent thinking 
dance that happens with creativity. And um, so this technology that allows us to disconnect from our normal waking state and go into altered states, to go into quiet states, it's hugely important. And what we feel is like uh, by, by making this more accessible to the people who are solving the world's problems, it helps us multiply our effect. You know, so that's, right. that's why these people are our target audience because, you know, we, we can't fix the world single-handedly, but if we can help a thousand people who go on to help another thousand people, we've touched a million lives, you know? So uh, that's kind of how, how we think about a lot of this, you know, um, helping people get high without drugs, essentially, yeah. And, yeah. and really get brilliant new ideas and insights on how to improve everything, improve the workplace, improve healthcare, improve how we do prisons, you know, correction facilities, how we do education, schools, uh, everything. Everything can be improved. Uh, we just need uh, will and creative insight, passion, and, and that spark that sometimes uh, brings it all together. You know, so that creative fire, we have, the, we have the timber with the wood, you know, and sometimes you just need to strike that match. And yeah. that happens a lot of times in these, in the, in the world of consciousness. That yeah. It's there, it's accessible to all of us. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I love that vision, you know, of that. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's the same vision I feel that comes with the, 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 the psychedelic vision. You made that link right between psychedelic users and the creation of a lot of IT technology, which is all around mm -hmm. the connectedness of people and the networking and the relationship of a bigger whole. And that's kind of the vision I'm getting from how you describe, you know, moves through um, humanity Absolutely. from individual to individual. I mean the, the inventor of the microchip, right, Frederick Fletcher, he had an experience like that of cosmic consciousness. And it's played a huge role in the way he, he thinks. Yeah. And it's been part of the thing that's driving him to study consciousness and advance technology at the same time. Right. Um, so th th that's a common thread, you know, between all these people. And so if you look at, um, at cognitive shifts, right, as these experiences that expand our mind, that help us see the world in a different way, they see paradigm shifts, right? Uh, technology that promotes paradigm shifts. I mean, that's pretty cool. So consciousness-related yeah. uh, technologies, you know, uh, consciousness techniques, out-of-body experiences, lucid dreams, what have you. If we see them in this angle, as cognitive shift generators. Not that you have one experience and you have one cognitive shift. These, you know, these you create, are rare. You create an what. opportunity, right? You create in a space but where you, this can occur. Exactly. You're, you're just increasing the, the, the probability. And then put that together with whatever, whatever you're doing in your life, you know, thinking, studying, researching, prototyping, having conversations. Yeah. Uh, that's That fuel put together with that special state of consciousness eventually can give you, yeah, that new angle, that new angle that could change everything. It could change how we do finance. It could change how we do banking, right? It could change how we do um, elections. 
you know, you could, you could change any, anything, whatever it happens to be your area of interest, you know, uh, how you do fashion, how you do manufacturing, whatever, what have you. And the whole in, new industry could come from one lucid dream, from one out-of-body experience, from one dream. And that's something that sometimes is overlooked. How many inventions, you know, have come out of dreams? How many works of art? How many, you know, entire movements of, of philosophies uh, have come out of these experiences? So it's definitely like a bottomless well yeah. of, of wealth, in a sense, right? Yeah. In, in its greatest sense. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, uh, there's a couple of concepts that you raise. I'll just be curious to, uh, you know, just uh, you know, to hear you talk a bit about it in your book. So just you talk about leadership, you know, you've got a chapter on leadership. Um, and when I was reading your chapter on leadership, again, maybe it's because I'm a parent, but I, I got a lot of sort of a sense of, you know, a particular model of parenting where there's a lot of care um, and interest and, uh, I guess really a sense of wanting to, um, you know, if, if you're a leader in a company, say, you're not just wanting your, your, the people that work for you to do the best job for your company, but you're actually genuinely interested in the best for the people that you're working with. Right. So the model of leadership that has emerged from my studies on, on consciousness and also, uh, my colleagues that I've collaborated with points us in this direction that if you want to create change, whether it's in your community, but in this context, in, in, in a company, you need to gain people's trust, right? Unless they just fear you and, you know, you rule by, by fear. That's yeah. one way of doing things. But generally speaking, if you want to make lasting change, you, people have to trust you. And people will trust you if, you if you can demonstrate that you care for them genuinely and that you're trustworthy. And part of being trustworthy is explaining to people your values, your principles, and then being consistent, coherent with them. And so it takes time, but people observe that, oh, you actually mean what you say. It's not just a slogan or you're not just being like a political statement. Um, Oh, and then, and then you you see, okay, this person it, it doesn't, you know, wreck me out just for fun, you know, and try and make my life miserable, and, or try to take advantage of me and step over me to get high. That there's um, there's respect, there's trust. So when you see care, you see you see a consistency of values. You develop trust. Now they have trust. You can have rapport. Which means if you tell people, listen, I know you're used to doing things this way, but are you willing to just try it one time and let's try it this way and just see what happens? And if it works well, maybe, maybe we can change things. It's a lot easier to get a yes in that, in that way. And then, okay, you try and make little experiments and then it works. And then you start to adopt this new way of doing things. And you build a little innovative team and then this team's doing really well, much better than all the others. And it's not long before people say, what are you guys doing? <laughs> and then that special team becomes the norm and everybody will do it that, that, that way. 
but it had to start with you making real genuine connection with a small group of people that so that together you could show that things could be done a different way. And leading by example. So I've had that, that leading by example. And so I had the opportunity to do that in a, in an electric utility, in a, in a project that, you know, the previous five years, let's just say they made five widgets in five years, right? And then after this change process, uh, they were able to achieve five, you know, widgets, check marks, you know, accomplishments in six months. Just like a, you know, ten, tenfold improvement. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and this, this is a, a, an example of how energy, values, trust, these things that are very much of the consciousness can have very solid like, economic results, right? Um, but yeah, it's built on, on, on that. But there, there are other aspects, you know, which is, so, so we have like these five pillars to essentially motivating people. So the first one is uh, growth. So allowing people to, to learn new things, to develop, right? To develop mastery over new things. Uh, a lot of people are motivated by that lever, right? Uh, another kind of lever of motivation is, you know, rapport. So definitely developing relationships, trust with people, uh, which requires you generally caring about them and knowing them. Uh, that definitely raises the bar, right, on, on, on results. Um, the, the other part is creating an atmosphere uh, that is safe, psychological safety, where people can throw around new ideas without being shut down, right? Uh, where there is inclusion and, and acceptance even, where people can thrive. Uh, and the, the, uh, the other part is to explain the purpose of things. So if you can explain the, the why, then, and then people feel like they're part of something bigger. They're not just doing something rote, like an assignment. They're part of a movement. They're part of a vision. Now, that can be almost like uh, misused, and create, you can create like a cult-like atmosphere work, uh, <laughs> you know, where you're getting people to believe in a vision when the intention is really just to make money, right? It can be, all these things can be misused and twisted. Yeah. But if done properly, then you are basically just aligning a vision, which is hopefully a very constructive vision for the world, generally trying to make the world a better place. Uh, and that's why you're creating value, right? Uh, and at the same time, you're aligning that with people's uh, interests and vision and uh, motivations and goals. So there's this alignment of the personal and the institutional organization or team, right? Uh, so, yeah, so people, people definitely want that autonomy, they, they, want, they want the purpose, they want the, gr- the growth. Uh, so yeah, yeah, these are some of the aspects of what we call conscious leadership. Yeah, yeah, no, those sound really important pillars. And uh, it does make me think that that last point you made, you know, the vision and the why, and then that can have that cult-like effect. That, does, that is a thing that I've, I've observed um, at times, and I find it quite interesting, is how there seems to be so often when there's a group of a group of people who have a strong purpose and a strong vision for something 
that can appear kind of scary to others, right? People who are not in that space are yeah. like, wow, what's going on with these people? You know, there's something, what have they been drinking or is there something, you know, are they under some kind of, um, and, uh, and it is a really fine line, right? Because um, fanaticism on the one hand and impassioned um, purposeful drive, they can be, they, they can be kind of blended or, you know, there's this can, one can flip to the other. Sure. Interesting, yeah. interesting yeah. thing. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, if it is uh, genuine, then that's how you can get long-term results. And yeah. essentially if, if you develop trust with people, most of the people will actually want to keep your trust and they will go above and beyond you know, to honor the trust you put in them and, and create a really healthy environment for, for people to, to thrive and for the group to thrive and worrying less about the exceptions. Like you, can, you can see patterns of behavior and then you can address uh, the exceptions, but really treat them as exceptions rather than treating everyone by the lowest common uh, denominator. You know, that definitely get better results that way. But one thing I have to say, just even from the beginning of my, my career, and I've had managers, colleagues come to me and say, like, what's almost like, almost like what's wrong with you, but in a, in a nice way. Uh, because they would see me smile and be just positive, even when things in the office were a little rocky. I yeah. think. After a while, people notice, like, are you, are you taking something, some vitamin? <laughs> what, <laughs> what's your secret, you know? Uh, I want some of that, whatever you're taking, I want some of that too. Uh, and that sometimes opened the space for me to talk about uh, some mindfulness practices and things like that yeah. with them, you know? And so it's kind of, there's something interesting about your example. Yeah, yeah just, absolutely. Not to say anything almost, just the way you, you behave, you, if you're able to maintain equanimity in, in even intense situations, it says a lot about yeah. you as a, as, a, as a leader, regardless of your title. Yeah, yeah. No, that's very true. And I can, yeah, I had similar kind of experiences really in, in workplaces. Um, yeah. I, I was... So a couple of other concepts you just mentioned, you talk about the zero cost economy. Um, I think we might've touched a bit on that already, but. Uh, yeah. So I had, the pleasure to, yeah, I had a pleasure to interview Fariz, uh, uh, who was uh, an economist. He lives in Florida, he lives in Miami. I think he ran for governor a few times to promote this idea. And uh, Dr. Kavari, Farid Kavari, he, he wrote a book called Zero Cost Economics, and the idea is that as manufacturing is becoming cheaper, cheaper, you know, especially things like 3D printing and so on, the marginal cost of things goes down, right? Like maybe it costs some, somewhat to make the first one, but then by, it's easy to just keep making more and the cost gets progressively closer to zero, right? And so it is possible to think about a future not that far away where it's basically not expensive. Like you can get everything you want. 
you can get energy from the sun and the wind. So you could theoretically get that for zero cost. You know, printing stuff could be cheap. Yeah, there's AI and machine intelligence, you know, just making things, running the machines. So you could just get your basic needs met without a whole lot of cost. So essentially, yeah. marginally, zero. In, in fact, we could probably already have that today, but we don't because of the way things, the world works, because that's not, not profitable <laughs> by definition, yeah. right? So uh, a very simple example, let's say in the US and Australia, other places, you, we are building large scale solar facilities, right? That's fantastic. It's good for climate change, everything. But who owns that power plant? You know, why, why can't we collectively finance and own that power plant? If we did, guess what? Yes, you, some of your tax money probably go into spending, you know, a billion dollars to make this gigantic solar farm. Yeah. But in three years, it might pay for itself. Let's say in eight years, it would probably be a lot less. So, okay, five years to recover the money. And then let's say that solar farm will last 20 years. So you'd have 15 years of free energy. Great, but that's not how it works. We, you know, the utility, whether it's government owned or privately owned, borrow the money from a bank that had the right to create that money out of thin air and charge interest to the company to the utility, and then that energy company will charge you a bill for 20 years, the lifetime of that company, and which is okay if you're working, but what if you're retired? You're, you're on a fixed retirement income, and the worth of that income goes down every year because of the, um, you know, the value of money actually goes down over time because of things like interest and inflation, and so, you work all your life, but now your expenses are steady or rising while your income goes down. That's what we live with nowadays. But in fact, if you worked all your life, but then you basically had free energy for the rest of your life, you know, free solar energy, let's say, and some of that solar energy might clean water. And so you'd get clean water for free as well. And, uh, you know, you get the picture. Yeah, we could build a world where people could get their basics for essentially zero dollars, at least after a while. But we don't. (laughs) So he's saying, let's build this world where let's have a state bank, a world bank, where you could get a loan for two percent to build a house. You don't need thirty years to pay down that house anymore. Yeah, right. So all these things are doable tomorrow if we have the will. It's the, it's, I mean, it's back to the consciousness shift, right? That's the, That's right. the paradigm shift, really, in this case, a profound yeah. paradigm shift. I'm, I'm, I imagine that quite a lot of it, people would hear these ideas and it, it doesn't even quite compute because we are so set in having been raised in this profit-driven... Right. It's just the way it works. Paradigm. It's just it's the, the way it is. works. Well, but it doesn't have to be that way. It's yeah. not kicked, it's not baked into the laws of physics. Yeah. It's something that we created. And here's the thing. That's the message. Uh, the biggest takeaway from the book is you don't like the way work, the world works. Good. That means you're aware that there's a problem. 
But then who created this world that we don't like? We did, humans did, which means it can be changed by humans also. But if we're going to wait for the savior, you know, whether you think the savior is like someone you can elect or someone who will descend from the heavens, I mean, okay, good luck. I hope that works, but probably it won't. You know, the, the hero you're looking for is, you know, the one you see when you're brushing your teeth or getting ready in the morning, <laughs> you know, in the mirror. Yeah, It's us. It's you and I. It's all of us. We have to be the change. So this book provides lots of hints about tools that are already at our disposal or they're coming down the pipe, you know, new ways of doing agriculture. You know, I talk about the work there, uh, or at least I point to the work of one of my uh, guest authors there, um, Alfredo Cunhal Sandin, Portugal. He has this uh, farm that in southern Portugal that uses a method uh, called uh, agroecology, which creates a sort of ecosystem, a balance between certain kinds of trees, certain kinds of uh, cultivation, and uh, like... Uh, grains and so on and certain types of animals and he sees uh, the animals and the trees as providing services ecological services and um, together they they maximize yield without the use of pesticides and so on and it's this is being practiced in a semi-arid region mm. that experiences Lots of days with high temperatures, not a lot of rain. It's always been that way, but it's getting worse with climate change now. And, but for 2,000 years, 1,000 years at least, it's how agriculture was done in that place. They abandoned those practices to, to embrace you know, the green revolution, not the green revolution of ecology, but one of... High-use pesticides and... Exactly. Yeah. And uh, a lot of those traditions were, were nearly lost, but people like him are bringing it back. Uh, he was also one of the uh, people uh, that were uh, suing uh, through a nonprofit, the U European Union, for not doing enough uh, for limiting economic damages caused by climate change. It's the first suit of its kind tying economic loss impact to families. Uh, due to inaction on climate change. It's a right. historic suit led by a German non-profit. And um, so, yeah, so uh, th th there's a little mentions about the circular economy there, you know, and little references to like the donut model. Yeah. Uh, these are like little keywords that people can, if they want to learn more, they can go and look into, uh, look into it. Worker-owned cooperatives. You know, you have a lot of companies that were owned by, families, but the children are not interested in running that company anymore. And rather than letting that company die, how about letting the workers join their funds, uh, buy a stake in the company? Maybe the owner can sort of retire but still collect uh, dividends and the company can continue. The brand can, can continue. Mm. And again, you see that these companies work very well. You don't need a lot of middle management when uh, the workers have skin in the game and they, they are now part owners. So they, they they are more motivated. They are sort of keeping an eye on each other. Uh, and, you know, all the slackers, if you will. 
because it's now impacting their bottom dollar, right? Yeah. And and uh, there are companies like this that are quite big, like uh, Mondragon in Spain. They are the fifth or seventh largest industrial group in Spain, and it's really a conglomerate of like a hundred uh, worker-owned cooperatives. Right. It's worth like fifteen billion in volume. So it's possible. Yeah. So yeah, look, there's a lot of different models. I think, as you say, your book hints at, you know, touches on many different topics. Um, where can people find your book? Is it uh, online or? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they can uh, go to Amazon, Google, uh, Apple, and on Amazon, it's also available in print and as well as Kindle. Uh, version and then on on uh, numabeing.com uh, my book is available for a limited time in the uh, for 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 members so basic members it's a free membership they can kind of get a sneak peek at the book but then it will always be available for premium members yeah and the book is called the Dow of the Dow, which when you say it doesn't quite capture that the first DAO is the tao and the second is the d-o-w right but <laughs> that's right so the you know, I don't go into depth into Taoist philosophy. Uh, you know, it's not the intent there. Uh, by no means an expert on the Tao, right? But uh, the Tao Te Ching, but the, you know, the little that I know about it, I, I actually found lots of interesting uh, quotes in there, you know, lots of interesting ideas that are very much in line with what's in the book, right? Yeah. So the idea of servant leadership, the idea of, making wealth not to accumulate and exercise power over others, but to really to serve others. Right. And, um, and yeah, and, and, and basically the whole book, the Tao teaching points at consciousness and, you know, the source of consciousness as the source of all things. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I, 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 it's, it's a, it's a useful pun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That no, works well. Yeah, well, thanks, Nelson. So thanks for touching into this other area. And I really appreciate the way you're trying to basically bridge that gap, right, which I think we talked about in, your first, in our first discussion between consciousness exploration as being kind of on the side of practical everyday life, right, and really showing how actually how foundational it really is. Yeah, the, my long-term goal with all of this is, on the one hand, to show everyday people that there is immediate value to things like energy practices, lucid dreams, out-of-body experiences, uh, that you don't have to go into those areas only if you're some kind you know, new ager or something like that. No. Everybody can derive immediate benefit, even economic benefit, right? Yeah. Uh, but of course, my hope is that as people enter into this world, maybe they're just looking for relaxation, well-being, relief from pain, you know, uh, new ideas, uh, stress relief, you know, things that someone who's into these topics for the spiritual depth might find them superficial, right? But they're things that affect their everyday life. They're hugely important, really. But okay, once they enter into this world for those reasons, at least some of them will will find also uh, greater self-awareness and maybe discover a world that's multidimensional and, Look, you know, much more interesting. Absolutely. Uh, but I if they don't, know. no harm done either. 
Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I didn't start meditation because I wanted to have out-of-body experience or anything. I just wanted to calm down, you know? (laughs) Right, right, right. It's important. And then on the other side, too, the people who are interested in all these things like uh, the world of the paranormal, all these consciousness realms, to, to stop and think about how to make their message gain more traction, yeah. you know, and how, how to connect it to other people's everyday, everyday world, even their own everyday world. Yeah. 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 No, that's, that's great. Thanks so much. Thank you, Kim. I really hope you got some value out of today's episode. If you did, why not leave a positive review on iTunes and share it on social media to help others find it. The tune Seeing Us Out is another one from Axel Teslev. This one is called Akasha. You can find more information about today's guest on my website, multidimensionalevolution.com, including any links to their work and their contact details. On my website, you'll also find my blog and information and reviews about my book, Multidimensional Evolution which you can purchase in any good bookstore if you want to show your love for this show and get practical info for your own exploration of consciousness. Finally, please get in touch, whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics. I always love hearing from people, as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, or until you tune in again, I am sending you my very best energies.